I invite you to open up your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Well, the message I'm going to, to give this morning from Titus 3, really looking at verses 1 and 2, and really we're just going to be mainly focused on, on the, the bulk of verse 1 this morning, is going to be a bit difficult for some of us this morning to hear in light of all that's going on in our society right now, and it's all that's going on in our country right now. But I, but I want to encourage you to listen intently. Listen not for my voice and the things that I say um, that are of my own opinion, wherever those, those enter in. Uh, cast those aside. Listen for what God says and look at what God's Word says and take it to heart because it, these things are not easy to apply. But keep in mind they are for our own good. Our Lord knows us. He designed us. He created us. He knows what we need. Now, why would I say the message is uh, going to be a bit difficult for some of us? Well, our government right now is not exactly making wise decisions for the most part. Uh, in fact, they seem to be intentionally making decisions that run contrary to sound economic strategies and uh, health practices. Add to this what seems to be epic level, levels of ineptitude Corruption, lies, self-promotion, and you've got a perfect storm for rebellion or retreat. But that's not all. The government's now chosen to play a game of chicken with nearly 80 million Americans who have chosen not to get the COVID shot. No, no, keep in mind, this message is not going to be about the shot or about COVID. Um, but who's going to give in first? Will the employees give in or will the government give in? Will workers relent to keep their jobs? Most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck, so you could hardly blame them if they chose to do that. Or will the government relent in light of an already difficult labor market? Will, or will the government drive our economy and society into another major storm, one of their own making, by forcing millions of people out of the workforce? People who desperately are desperately needed to care for injured and sick. People who are needed to manufacture goods, people who are needed to process those goods and foods and get them to the stores, truck drivers to get them to the stores, stockers to stock the shelves, and grocery workers to keep them, keep everything flowing, not to mention anything about restaurants. You notice there's, uh, most of them now have alternate hours that they're forced into doing because they just don't have enough employees to stay open on as like they normally would. And all of this is over a shot that has proven itself unreliable in stopping the COVID Delta variant from infecting or even killing people and has serious side effects for some people and which the long-term effects of which are still unknown. Add to this, the government is talking about giving $450,000 to every child that came across our border illegally and is separated from their parents just to see whether they really were their parents or not, but that's another matter. Um, add to that the fact that our government is convinced that either white nationalism or uh, global warming is the biggest enemy to our nation. They can't really figure out which one of those. They keep saying one and they'll say the other. Um, they just keep adding and adding and adding things that you would look at it and just say, this is crazy. You're right. It is. So how are you feeling right now? How are you doing with all this? Are you fearful? 
Do you just want to run away, find a remote island, mountain, you know, with a nice view, away from it all, off the grid? Or are you angry? Do you just want to fire up the political engines to get the conservatives go and get out the vote, get some conservatives uh, back in political office, get back to the good old days, whatever those were? Are you so angry maybe that you even thought about bypassing political means to bring about change in other ways? Well, in God's providence, we've come to Titus 3 this morning. And it is his providence that brings us to this passage at this time. And he, this passage gives us guidance on how Christians should respond to our governing leaders and these situations. God doesn't want you to, to be unthinkingly compliant. But he also doesn't want you to be fearful. And he especially doesn't want you to live life as an angry person. Angry at our government. Titus 3, 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, provide us a, a reminder of of things that, that for us perhaps will be new, but most of us have, have heard these things before, a reminder of, of what Paul outlines as seven healthy habits that must characterize our response to government and to the uh, watching world around us. And these responses uh, must be ours so, so that we represent Christ well to a watching world. They provide a foundation for our witness but also enable us to honor our Lord and our God. And with that introduction, let's, let's read Titus 3, verses 1 to 2. Paul says there, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, let's just remind ourselves a, a, a few things from this context. That here, Paul is, is commanding Titus to remind the uh, Cretan believers of things that he had already taught. That, that implies that he had, he had been there, he had, he had taught them. They had already heard these things. This, Titus was not breaking new theological ground. He was simply to provide a reminder. And Scripture really doesn't record when... Paul made a visit like this to, to do this kind of teaching. We, we know that he briefly visited the island of Crete on his way to Rome as he was being taken to Rome for kind of a house arrest to, to, to face trial in Rome when he appealed to Caesar. Um, it, we're told in Acts 27 that, that he was briefly on the island, but it doesn't seem like a, a long enough time because the ship, as it uh, landed on Crete, it didn't winter on Crete. So he would have only been there a short amount of time. We're not told how long, but it wouldn't have been a, a, a extensive time for Paul to go to, to the various churches and be able to teach in depth uh, in these levels. So we're not told when, but it's very clearly that Paul at some point was on the island of Crete and taught the Cretan Christians there their responsibility towards government and towards unbelievers. And all this is inferred in that command to remind. It's not to speak, it's not to teach, in this case, it's to remind. It carries the same intention as teaching, but it, it does imply that they were taught these things before. Titus was to engage in a remembrance ministry. And, and when Paul says remind them, he's specifically referring to the Christians. That is the older uh, and younger men, the older and younger women that were addressed in chapter 2. 
that we looked at those instructions. Titus is to remind the Christians on Crete about their responsibilities to live for Christ in, in a world that either wanted to ignore Christ or completely, any, completely eliminate any thought about Christ. To remind someone of something means to cause one to remember, to bring to remembrance, to call, recall to mind. It's a word we use frequently, so why do I define words like that at times? Just to, to remind us, uh, no pun intended, to remind us of what it, what, it, what it means. We need to recall something we once were taught, but perhaps have forgotten. And so we're called to re- remember these things. And so Paul writes the command to Titus as a, what we call a, a, in, the, in the present imperative, meaning this is something he was to engage in, not just once, not just once, but on a, on a regular basis, he was to do these things. This, this teaching ministry of reminding people of what they have previously been taught is an effective tool that all teachers engage in, whether you're teaching at, at a school or, or you're teaching the Word of God. It, the, the tool of just recovering, reminding, reviewing is a very important tool, and God understands that. And we see it pop up on multiple occasions in, in letters. For example, in 2 Timothy 2.14, Paul instructs Timothy, and this would be his last letter that, that Paul would write, he instructs Timothy to remind them of these things. So Timothy was shepherding the church at Ephesus, and he was to remind the church at Ephesus at certain things, and Paul lays those things out in that letter. Uh, the Apostle Peter also engages in a remembrance ministry. 2 Peter 2.12 um, in Second Peter 2.12, Peter writes, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. So look at the patience of Peter. He's just saying, look, I, 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 I've taught you these things, but I, but I know that you don't remember it all. No one can remember it all. So I'm reminding you things. In fact, he says, I'm just going to keep stirring your way by remembrance. So much so that the Holy Spirit inscripturated those reminders for us so that we could always go back to them. And the Lord's half-brother Jude engages in a remembrance ministry in Jude 5. He's, he writes there, he says, Now I desire to remind you that though you, you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. So he's reminding them even of things that were written in the Old Testament and the implications of those. And let us not forget that one of the Holy Spirit's roles, initially first to the disciples and later to us, um, is to remind us. Uh, the Holy Spirit reminded the disciples of what Jesus taught, and he helped them understand the implications of what he taught. And later he would help them to remember what Jesus did and what he said in order to inscripturate those and, and get those, those accounts to us. That's why our Gospels are trustworthy today. And the Holy Spirit in a lesser sense, not in the sense of giving us Scripture, but in a, in a lesser sense, the, the Holy Spirit helps us today to remember things we have taught or been taught at, at key occasions when we need that information so our Lord, all this to say, our Lord is very gracious. He knows that we don't get it the first time. I mean, he did teach the 12 disciples. and You know how often he had to repeat lessons for them. And none of us are like them. Um, we're not any better than them. So we need a remembrance ministry. And our Lord is just, uh, again, so gracious and accommodating to our forgetful and finite minds by willingly and graciously and repeatedly telling us of things that we should remember but don't. Now, in in Titus 3, Paul gives Titus seven Christian characteristics or healthy habits 
that, that he was to remind the Cretan believers of. And, and these are really shorthand. Uh, we're going to unpack it and spend some time. We're not going to rush through this. But these are given in shorthand fashion in Titus 3. They're given in shorthand, rapid fire, staccato fashion that would serve to, to jog the memory of the Cretan believers of the things they had previously been taught. In fact, these are given in such disjointed little, little uh, bullets, you might say, that, that through the years certain scribes have inserted um, the, the word and in there. But it's, but it's, there, it's not there. There in the original Greek. So it's just one word kind of after another, after another. And, and it's given um, to, to just, uh, again, for the Cretan believers, it would have been a, a reminder. These, these are the things Paul's hitting the highlights. But for us, we want to take time to, to look at what and understand what Paul wrote. Um, Paul wrote these in quick rapid fire session. It was Titus's job to unpack it, help them, un- help them understand it and help them apply it. And what are these seven healthy habits that uh, must characterize your response to and interactions with those outside the church, especially the government? Well, these are listed in verses two and three. You can just kind of follow along, let your eyes follow along as we, as we, uh, as we look at that. The first one, be subject to your governing authority, authority. Second, be obedient to your governing authorities. Third, be ready for every good deed. Fourth, don't malign anyone. Fifth, be peaceable. Sixth, be gentle. Seventh, be showing every consideration for all men. We'll unpack these and, and dig into it so make sure that we understand these things. The first healthy habit that we want to examine, the one we'll spend a good part of our time on this morning, um, is to be subject to your governing authorities. Be subject to your governing authorities. Paul taught the church to be subject to those who had authority over them. And it's interesting in, in verse 1 that Paul uses two different words for governing authorities. The, these words are, are brought forward in the Greek text to kind of emphasize them. So, you know, in English we would say be, obe- be subject to rulers and authorities. The Greek is something like authorities, rulers, subject to. Okay? Be subject to. And again, it's, it's done that way for emphasis, to kind of emphasize who you're being um, subject to. Now, the word rulers means those who are principals over us, those who have rule over us, those who hold political office over us. This refers to anyone who has been given dominion over us. Uh, Authorities is a word that refers to those who have power over us. And Paul kind of combines these two terms together to refer to all all, all various kinds of authority over us. Sometimes these words are brought together, rulers and authorities, to refer to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places in Ephesians 3.10. So they're referring to angels. Then uh, in other places like Titus 3, he, he uses these terms to refer to earthly human rulers. And, and that's what he's doing here in Titus. The two words, ruler and authorities, really just combine and, and refer to civil authorities who hold some form of governmental office over us. And he doesn't define those. It could be kings, could be dictators, could be elected president. He doesn't define that at all. All those are included. So the the call is very clear. Those who have authority over us are the ones that are subject, that we're to be subject to. Now, Paul is reminding believers to be subject to these governing civil authorities. Again, the Greek text isn't difficult. It's just difficult for us to apply the, the word be subject to is, is, a, is the Greek word hupatasso, which means to, to come under. It's a military term. It means, uh, you know, a soldier would, would come under 
the authority of his commanding officer. So that's the background of the word. And we've seen this word before. Look at Titus 2.5. Titus 2.5. You see there in the instructions that, that are given to older women, that older women are, are to encourage younger women to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So we've, we've seen that before. Don't need to spend a lot of time developing that. But but understand that this is the same word, the same word that that is used with with addressed to wives is now addressed to the to Christians in general. And the subject here isn't the husbands. The subject is um, is the government. And the word be subject to means to put yourself under the authority. So just like wives are called to be subject to their husbands, Christians are called to be subject to the government, the governing authorities over them. And the Christian, this Christian characteristic or habit of being subject to those who are in authority over you is repeated multiple times in Scripture. Again, this just speaks to the grace of God because he repeats it, um, you know, not, not just verbatim, but he gives us multiple periscopes and looks at this particular teaching to help us with this. But it's all, it's all on different sorts of, of levels. Children are called to obey their parents, Ephesians 6.1. Now, obey is a slightly different word uh, than be subject to, um, and we'll talk more about that in, in, a, in a moment. That's the second word we'll look at. So we'll say, look at that in a moment. But understand, it's, it's the same principle. It's an outflow of being subject to. Wives are called to be subject to their husbands, uh, not only from Titus, but also in Colossians 3.18 and Ephesians 5.22. Slaves and servants are called to be subject to their masters. We saw that in also in Titus 2, but we, we can see it in 1 Peter 2.18. Young men are called to be subject to their church elders, 1 Peter 5.5. 5. And in our interactions with other believers within the church, we are, we are called to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ so that we'll serve one another in holiness, considering the interest of others as more important than our own. That's Ephesians 5. So um, just really our lives as believers are to be characterized by the issue of a characterization of being subject or subjecting ourselves, submitting ourselves. And so here at Titus 3, Paul is applying the gospel to our relationships with those people who govern us, those people who oversee us, who have who have authority over us. And he's telling us to be subject to them again, just like the the outflow um, there are gospel outflows or gospel implications for the various age groups of Christians in chapter 2. This is a gospel outflow for all believers and how we interact with the unbelieving world around us, especially our governing officials. This is a difficult command. It's difficult for us today, but I want you to understand it. It was very difficult for Cretan believers. It was difficult for Roman believers. This, was, this is never an easy command to, to obey. Um, the only perfect government is God. And since right now uh, he has chosen to mediate that rule through governing officials, sinful governing officials, we, we, we're going to struggle with this. So we're going to have to remind ourselves to keep coming back to this. Remember the description of the stereotypical Cretan from Titus 1? Remember what that was? Cretans are always liars evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you might think, ah, that kind of sounds like some of our politicians. Right? Well, understand that 
you know, when we think about these terms, um, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, you, you kind of and I you kind of tend to think about the town drunk. You don't think about, you know, the the town ruler. But understand that this this stereotype was so pervasive in the Cretan culture that it undoubtedly uh, was true of at least some of the leaders. Now, we don't have those kind of details. But again, the, the Cretans were known for these type of, <clears throat> excuse me, th- those type of characteristics. So this description probably applied to at least some of those governors who had authority over the believers on the island of Crete. And, and so understand that it's, it's difficult to be subject to people who are, who are lazy or who are liars or who are evil beasts or right, doing things that are evil. So that's, that's, um, that's something that the Cretans knew about. And yet Paul still commanded Titus to remind them. And he, and he, he said this as well, you know, in his letter um, of Romans to believers then in a, in a time when certainly governing officials were anything but righteous and holy, right? Government was still was corrupt then, just like in many places corrupt now. So that, that's, that's the background. And keep in mind that here in the United States, we have one of the best forms of human government that can be found in our sinful planet. I know it's denigrated today, but it still has one of the best forms of government anywhere, even with all of its problems. So God knows our weaknesses, and he's provided lots of reminders to us of the the issue of being subject to those authorities over us and really how how forgetful we are. And sometimes that's a selective um, hearing. Now, the truth of what we're looking at today to be subject to governing authorities is found elsewhere. I've hinted at that or, or said it. Turn to Romans 13. You need to turn there so you can see this for yourself and read along with me. Romans 13, beginning of verse 1. Just doing a little cross-reference here to help you see that what Paul tells Titus to remind the believers of is found elsewhere. It would really only need to be found in one place in Scripture for us to have an obligation to it. But again, God's gracious. He provides um, more reminders and emphasizes this point by repetition. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person, notice, notice there, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is afraid, but you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you pay taxes. You also pay taxes for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. 
that would be a lot to unpack in Romans 13, but I just want you to see the, the overall, the big picture. Everyone is to be subject to governing authorities, and we're late, and, and Paul provides us reasons why in that passage that we'll return to later in this message. Uh, look at First Peter. Turn to First Peter chapter 2. Remember that Peter was even writing to those who were going through persecution. He was writing to those who had scattered because of a persecution of, of Christians. So when, when the timing is right, there's nothing wrong with fleeing when that makes wise sense. God used that to spread the gospel. Here he says in, in Titus, I mean, sorry, First, Timoth- First Peter uh, 2, being at verse And I'm picking up some of the context here because I want you to see it. A lot of times we just narrow down, but the context here is very important. And actually there's some some similarities with what we're told in Titus. So that's why I'm beginning reading in verse 4. The the verses that we're really going to hit home on are verses 13 to 17. But I want to begin in verse 4 because it kind of paints the, uh, the, the wider picture, gives us the foundation for the... Um, instructions given in verse 13 through 17. And coming to him as, a, as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed, This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. I think the word there is slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Unless we think our submission is only to be given to to worthy authorities over us. Let's just read just a little bit more in Second Peter. Look at verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And the word there really pertains to being evil. Um, 
For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there, if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you have been called, notice the connection, purpose, reason, for you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Notice that, that from here we are to be subject to leaders even if they are not worthy, even if they're evil. Again, this isn't saying mindless subjection. This isn't saying you obey them no matter what. We're going to get, get to that in a moment. But, but the pattern of our lives as Christians is to be that, to be people, to be the nation of God, the people of God who are subject to the authority that God has placed over us. And notice Jesus is held up as an example of someone who was subject to unworthy leaders, even evil leaders, and yet he was without sin. So obviously Jesus is more than an example, but here he's being held up as as the example to follow in situations like that. So no doubt Paul taught Cretan believers about Jesus' submission as well when he when he originally taught this. And, and yet perhaps um, because of how hard submission is, when we think about Titus and the letter of Titus, Paul wanted Titus to remind the Cretan believers that submission to governing authorities is, is so critical uh, to to their witness. Um, it, and it, it is uh, something that's just a non-negotiable. It's very clear in Scripture. So this is the first healthy habit that must characterize your response and interactions with those outside the church so that you honor Jesus Christ and maximize your witness. But it's not the only one. The second one adds to it and is very similar uh, in likeness. In fact, I would say that the, the second point kind of builds on the first point. The, the first point, be subject to, is, is really more of an, of an attitude where the second step, be obedient, is an action. Being obedient to your governing authority. So this is the second healthy habit that must characterize our response to the watching world around us, or to our governing officials around us. Be obedient to your governing authorities. Paul taught the church to be obedient. And the word obey appears in the Greek text abruptly. As I mentioned, there's no, there's no and, there's no connector. It's just in staccato fashion. There's nothing um, linking it um, with the words around it. And so some have said, well, this is just obedience in general. I think this is referring to obedience um, to governing officials because of the close connection with what has just been said. He's talking about obedience. This is the action of the attitude that he's already mentioned. The attitude of subjection leads to obedience. Now, in, in uh, the word obey means to accept direction from. If you, you just look at it from that stand, standpoint, to accept direction from. And there's a, there's a neat uh, illustration of this 
passage that we might have overlooked because of the English translation. In Acts 27, verses 9 to 10, we read how, how Paul was warning the Roman centurion who was taking him on the ship when they were on the island of Crete. They, uh, Paul uh, was warning the Roman centurion and the ship's captain and the crew not to set sail. And, and um, they, were, they were at the, in, the, in the kind of the harbor of Fair Havens, which wasn't, I guess, a great harbor for wintering. They didn't want to stay there. I'll just read that text to you. He said, when considerable time had passed and voyage was now dangerous, since even the fast was already over, Paul began to admonish them and said to them, men, I perceive that the voyage will certainly be with damage and great loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion was more persuaded by the pilot and captain of the ship than than what was being said by Paul. So he's kind of paint the scene. So Paul's warning them not to set sail. You know, what are, what are Paul's uh, sailing credentials? Yeah, exactly. So the ship captain thought, you know, or the centurion thought, you know, I'm going to listen to someone who's been sailing, this old salty captain who's been sailing his whole life. And, um, you know, if you didn't know Paul well, then you probably would make the same conclusion. So he won't be too hard on the ship captain. But uh, the rest is kind of history, as they say. So they set sail. And they ran into a storm, as you know, and the storm was fierce, and they threw everything over, and they feared for their lives. And, and towards the end of that, Paul says this. He says, When they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this damage and loss. Now, just, just a minute. Guys are sick. They think they're going to die. They've lost hope. Um, and Paul says, you ought to have followed my advice. He's saying, I told you so. All right. So it's one of those I told you moments. But it's actually stronger than that. Because actually the word, that whole phrase, you ought to have followed my advice, is really you ought to have obeyed. You ought to have taken my direction. And so it kind of leads us to, to think that Paul just wasn't offering mere advice. You know, Paul, as an apostle, was guided by the Holy Spirit. He, he, he didn't have full, a full idea of what lied ahead, but the Holy Spirit was warning him of the dangers ahead and was using Paul to, to warn the sea captain away from, from that kind of um, voyage, and they didn't listen. And the, the gracious part of it is that Paul says, he continues to say, lest they uh, get angry with him and, and want to kill him. He says, yet now I urge you to keep up your courage for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. So the captain would lose his ship, but he would his life would be saved. So un- understand that that's, that's, the, that's the idea here is there's offering direction. Now, the sailors had and the centurion especially had no um, they they weren't obligated to obey Paul and hence they did not. Right? So that there's that sphere of authority. Paul was not in a position of authority over them. He was warning them. Really, I think the Holy Spirit was using him to warn them. But again, the providence of God, uh, God wanted Paul in Rome safely. And so he worked out uh, that way to, um, to get him there safely. One, one commentator highlighted that, that this second word, obedience, the second word in our list, uh, reinforces the point of subjection by indicating obedience as the normal pattern, as one practical expression of the subordination to the state. D. Edmund Hebert explains that to be obedient 
states the result and visible demonstration of their attitude of submission. The result and visible demonstration of their attitude of submission. Now, to this point, I just want to pause and reflect a moment on what Scripture tells us. Ought to characterize us in our relationship with governing authorities. One, we are to be subject to their governing to our governing authorities. That's again more of a more of an attitude than an exact action. Um, the action comes in the second part. We are to obey our governing authorities. Are there any qualifiers, exemptions, or exceptions to our duty to be subject to and obey our governing authorities? Well, we're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, I just want to just want to re-emphasize how important it is that the pattern of our lives as Christians must be submission and obedience to governing authorities. The disposition, attitude, and responses of Christians towards governing authorities must normally, typically, usually, and characteristically be that of submissive and obedient. God does not want His people to be known as rebels. God does not want His people to be just like the unsaved. You know, there's a lot of conservative, unsaved people who you and I would agree with on a great deal of many things. And they're very angry right now. Very angry over all that's going on. Um, So the Christian must respond differently than the unsaved, conservative. God does that in us. It's hard. We need to depend upon Him, but that's what He does. If you're a person who regularly looks for ways to avoid obeying the government, whether it's not obeying the traffic laws, the tax laws, or other laws that might come down the pike that you don't like, let me just be very clear here. You have a major spiritual problem with God. I'm stepping on my toes and yours. Because, again, the natural bent of our heart is to rebel against things we don't like. So we are to establish a general pattern of submission and obedience. And in fact, the lack of general uh, of a general pattern of submission and obedience in our lives is sin that we need to repent of, seeking the Lord's forgiveness and His help to overcome. Our Lord submitted perfectly to an evil government. In very different circumstances. He did it to save our souls. He did it to obey the Father. But He knows what it's like. We can appeal to Him. We can cry out to help. And he will provide the help that we need to do what he wants us to do. So that's the first thing. That, that's got to be the baseline. Our pattern, the pattern of our lives must be that of being subject to and obedient to our governing authorities. Second, it's important to know that God doesn't provide any qualifiers regarding the type of government. I mentioned this earlier. So these, this command, this pattern is true whether we're dealing, uh, whether we're li- Christians are living in a country with with kings that's kind of uh, inherited uh, by by sons, by daughters. The rule just passed along in the bloodline. Whether uh, you live in a country that's been taken over by dictators, whether it's been taken over by the military in some kind of coup, or whether you live in a democratic country, uh, even when the election process is called into question. Um, all of these things really are irrelevant to the command of being generally in subjection to and obedient to. So as we saw from 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 18 to 25, we're obligated to this general pattern of submission. Even when we don't have leaders, we would consider worthy or respectable or reasonable or good. Even when we have leaders who are unworthy or unreasonable or who pursue evil ends or despicable goals, 
our typical response needs to be respectful, honorable, submissive, and obedient. Don Green puts it this way. He says, submission in the midst of a hostile world is to be the defining mark of the way that we respond to the authorities that are over us. Submission in the midst of a hostile world is to to be a defining mark of the way that Christians respond to the authorities that are over us. Now, what about exemptions or exceptions? Does does God always want us to obey our governing authorities? Well, let me uh, answer that this way. Um, God has established various spheres of authority. The sphere of governmental authority is only one of those authorities that he has established that are over us. God has established other spheres of authority. There's the sphere of what I call personal authority. And what I mean by this is not that you're autonomous and can decide everything yourself. God hasn't given you the authority for that. But you're responsible for how you live your life. You're responsible for taking care of your body. You're responsible for being a good steward of your body for the Lord's sake. Uh, for the Lord's sake, God has given you the authority to, to decide what you will believe, uh, what you will do. Uh, of course, all that's under his sovereignty, but there's a certain amount of decisions that are yours to make. God has given you a, a, a limited authority to make these decisions. You can live in New York. You can live in Ohio. You can live in California. Those are yours decisions to make. Right? That's, that's your authority. Uh, it's your authority to decide what you eat. Uh, within reason, unless you're sick or something like that, or or um, you're locked up and incarcerated, you don't get much choice. But the, the point is, there's a, there's a sphere of a per, there is a legitimate sphere of personal authority, and you are responsible for your health. You make decisions concerning your health, whether you want a procedure or whether you don't want a procedure. God has given that to you. Then there's what I'll call the sphere of marital authority, where a husband has legitimate authority over his wife. We've talked about that before. Um, I won't belabor that now. Then there's the sphere of parental authority. There's a certain amount of authority that God has given parents to to determine and and direct the affairs of their children's lives while, while they're young and in their home. Then there's a sphere of what I call employer authority, where the employer, as owning the business, is allowed to decide how they're going to run their business. So there's details of that business that the government has no business telling them how to run, and and you, as the employee, have no business telling your employer how to run their business. You can offer advice, but you have no authority to to tell them that. Then there's the the sphere of what I call the church authority, and, and ultimately, who's head of the church? That's Christ. And who has been given authority to lead local churches, and that's elders. And so there's a certain amount of church authority. And th- this kind of flows through through life. There's no one single passage that lays this all out like this. What I've done is I've is, um, done a lot of reading. Uh, there's a book by William Kuyper that does uh, develops this idea of spheres of authority. Um, really, there are implications and applications of of Calvinism that he draws out there and he takes careful to, to define that. I don't agree everything with Abraham Kuyper says, but I think he, he, um, he developed this line of thought. Well, he's a Dutch theologian that, um, um, lectured at Princeton in like 1898 or something like that. So, um, uh, a while ago, but the, the idea is if you look at scripture, these, these authorities are God-given authorities. You could go to chapter and verse and show where God has, has given authority 
um, in these particular spheres. So we're just trying to get a high level on that, not do a deep dive on this. But keep in mind, all these spheres of authority report directly to God. Right. So this isn't like a pyramid scheme. Uh, this, this is an idea where each of these authorities has been given their authority by God and report to God. And what I mean by that is that they're held responsible for exer- exercising their authority uh, to God. And God will hold them accountable for how they did or did not exercise their authority. So um, when, when one authority tries to exercise authority outside of its God-given sphere, which, which does happen in our sinful world, then we must pray for wisdom and exercise biblical discernment on how to respond, trying to evaluate whether, the, the, whether that authority over us is actually legitimately has a, a sphere of authority that we need to obey or not in, in that matter. Um, and realize that, that ultimately God is the only one that you should always obey. Um, in a sense of because he he has ultimate authority and he never sins. He's always right and just. So he has the ultimate authority. So one of the principles as we're working through this, whether we obey our governing authorities over us or not, whether that's a parent or a husband or um, a government, is you say, does that command that I'm being told violate anything that God has told me? Right. So if, if a governing authority over you tells you not to do something that God says to do, to do that is they, they prohibit something he commands, or if they command something God prohibits, whose authority do you listen to? Right? Well, there's good examples of this in Scripture, lots of them. The apostles in Acts 4 and 5 say we have to obey God rather than men. You know, they, they were commanded to stop preaching the gospel. And they say, well, well you know, really... You don't have the authority to command us to do that. We're going to obey God. Right? Now, they suffered the consequences of it. And notice that they, they didn't uh, retaliate against those who scourged them, um, who punished them. They went away rejoicing that they suffered, were worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Then we have examples in the Old Testament of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Right? We never violate God's command. You always obey God's command, no matter what the consequences are. God will, will provide for you. He may rescue you out of the circumstance, or he may use your life as a, as a witness of the martyr for him. Either way, God be glorified. You'll be fine. Just trust him. Always obey God, rather than an authority who's telling you to do something that, that violates God's command. So when you have two lesser authorities trying to exercise authority Uh, say a lesser authority trying to exercise authority over another lesser authority you need to ask yourself who's who has legitimate authority and it it is difficult at times there are gray areas that's why you need lots of counsel pray ask for wisdom talk to the the, the church elders leadership get wisdom on on what's going on ask yourself is it possible to obey to obey both you know that could be an issue of timing um can I obey this, obviously, without sinning against God? And, and can I obey? There's times where we, we can accommodate, even if they don't have authority to tell us this. We don't always have to be rebellious. We, we, we can overlook that. And there's times where we can, we can surrender that particular authority temporarily in order to, to accommodate and to help 
uh, to be perceived as being subjection and, and being obedient. But yet we do have to ask ourselves at some point, if, if this continues, will, um, will I permanently surrender that authority to that, to that particular um, authority who, who doesn't have it? Like if one sphere is exercising authority over another sphere that it doesn't really have, if, if that pattern goes on, will that authority be lost? And I think the answer to that is, in most cases, yes. But, but understand that these fears, especially the governmental sphere, because we live in a sinful world, they will try to seize authority not given to it by God. And that's just what happens. Um, husbands become what? Dictators, if they're not guided by the Spirit. Um, fathers can become tyrants to their children if they're not guided by the Spirit. Governments can, can also just take more power, more authority than they're given. So we need to carefully discern these things and, and realize that this is a wisdom issue. This is not a, this is, these, these kind of issues when they come up, they're wisdom issues. So Christians may come to different conclusions on these things and that's okay. Um, there's no one size fits all answer to a generic situation like this. For example, when a government tells the church to stop meeting due to a, due to a pandemic, uh, well, I don't think we know anything about that, do we? Um, how will the church respond? Well, most churches voluntarily stop for a little while. And so really, it's, it's, the issue is the, it, with the decision of the local church elders. Is it a wise thing to stop meeting for a time being? Um, they may decide that it is. Other elders of other churches just never stop meeting. Right? There are a few churches that never stop meeting through this. They're, they're the minority, but they never stop meeting. Other churches stopped, and I don't even know if they've started back yet or not. They're still like doing the, the live stream thing. Um, the, the, thing, the thing we have to understand, though, if you decide to stop and accommodate to the authority of the government's request, in some cases states demanded that churches stop meeting or lim- meet in limited numbers, if we do that, how long do we do that? How long before all of a sudden the state thinks that they have authority to tell the church when to meet and how often to meet and where to meet and how many of them can meet together. That's not authority that's given to the state at all because the Lord is head of the church and he's commanded the church to meet. So all these things, these are, I'm just throwing out these things for us to think about. They're practical, practical things that have to be decided on by those who lead a local church. And and when these uh, lesser authorities collide, I'll, I'll put it that way, then we have to, to think through which, which authority, which governing authority really has God-given authority in that area. And when we're trying to wrestle with these things, we are permitted by Scripture to, to explore all legal means for appealing the situation. So by no means does the Scripture forbid us from taking our government to court. We're not to take other Christians to court but we are allowed to use our citizenship and appeal to the God-given rights that he's given us in this country to make appeals to our government. And you see many, many um, uh, people doing that uh, today. Um, and you just have to pray for Lord's uh, work to be done through that, through that legal process. So understand that, that that is legitimate. Paul appealed to his citizenship in order not to be tried in Jerusalem. He appealed to Caesar. He was taken to Rome. So that's just one example where we're given that, that that's a legitimate way to work through some of these things. Um, 
But we must also keep in mind that that the commands of God not only are the direct commands, like that we're to meet or to read the Word of God or to proclaim the gospel, but there's also some some indirect commands we have to think about. Like we're commanded to love one another, and I know that you know for some people that means you know wear a mask, but I think that's shallow thinking. It could mean that. It could mean that. But how are we supposed to look out? And really love one another. And with the mask and the social distancing, you're actually teaching people to be fearful of one another. You know, I don't want to get too close to you. You might kill me. Right? How can we look out for those who are lonely, who are discouraged, and you can't see their face? The church has to do that. You know, depression is skyrocketing because of all that's, that's gone on. Seeing your face communicates a lot, even if you don't say anything. So, you know, I'm just saying there are other other considerations we have to think about. Like, do we obey a mask mandate or not? There are certain things that that we do need to think carefully about, whether we obey or whether we respectfully disobey. Now, when disobedience to our governing authorities is wise or even mandated by the situation. We must be respectful in how we disobey. Let's be respectful. If we do something, like if, say, the pandemic gets worse, and they try to tell churches not to meet, and we meet, and, and um, there are certain penalties for that, then we must be willing to suffer the consequences of that. We can make legal appeals, and we can go through that process, but we will do so respectfully. Right? We don't need to be verbally abusing someone that might be trying to just do their job. For example, the police. Police are told to do a certain job. They didn't make the ruling. Would it be just and right for us to verbally abuse a police officer just because he's doing his job? A job that we think is wrong, but but nonetheless, he's he's being commanded to do it. So, the, so there's times where we must disobey. We must do it respectfully. We must be willing to bear the consequences, trusting God, to work out what is best for us, trusting his sovereignty. Remember that the pattern of our lives is to be subject to and obedient to the governing authorities. The things we've just been discussing should be the rare exceptions. And I know we have a lot of exceptions now, but understand that the pattern of our lives needs to be subjection and obedience to to our governing authorities. Now let's just take a step back a moment here at the end and think about the bigger question, why? Why? Why does God tell us to be subject and obedient to our governing authorities, even those who are not good leaders? We might say even evil leaders. Why? Why does God want his people to be submissive and obedient to the authorities over us? I appreciated uh, Don Green's analysis of this in his uh, sermon on, on Titus 3 and kind of follow his logic at this point. The first reason is that God is sovereign over all. God is sovereign over all. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. There's no authority higher than him. God rules over everything. He is totally sovereign. Don't believe the false teachers that tell you that God doesn't know the future or God can't determine the future. That he's reacting to things that are going on. There's still some teaching out there about that 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 you read in books from time to time. 
God knows everything. He rules over it all. Psalm 103 verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. All. All in that context means all. It means everything. Everything he's created. There's not a, as R.C. Sproul would say, there's not one rebellious molecule that is somehow out of his control. He rules it all. Um, everything. Here I just quote Don Green. I think his explanation is helpful. Don Green notes that the holy, righteous, and gracious God of the Bible is the God who is sovereign over all, and nothing happens outside of the will that he intended. Nothing happens outside of what he prescribed the course of human history to be like. And his sovereignty is so great, it is so vast, it is so unlimited, that it even transcends the fact that men disobey his moral commands. He covers it all, he directs it all. So the fact that you have an evil leader rise up and do things that are contrary to the will of God, evil men, murderous men, God's sovereign over them all. The small, the great, the weak, and the powerful. He's sovereign over all. So that's the first reason. The second reason is is that God is sovereign over the rise of leaders. God is sovereign over the rise of leaders. We see this in passages like Daniel 2, verses 20 and 21. I'll read that to you. Daniel said, Let the name of God be blessed forever and ever. For wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and epochs. He removes kings and establishes kings. He removes kings and he establishes kings. Beloved, I know there's a lot of contesting going on and still going on over who actually won the election and whether there was any um, uh, malplay um, that changed the course of the election. Not sure we know the result of that. Certainly we'll never have evidence of it or, or it would have already been produced. But recognize whether there was or whether there wasn't, God is sovereign over the rise of President Biden to the office that he now sits in. That wasn't an accident. Right? I know that's hard for us to understand. There are many, there are many things that God does that are hard to, for us to understand. These are the secret things of God. You know, God's, God's given us his, the, in the word of God, he's given us, he's revealed his will to us. And that's his revealed will. And we know what his will is. But there's, then he has his, the secret counsel of God and how he brings other things about he hasn't revealed to us. And, and that's just because he's God. He's not going to reveal everything um, that he's doing. He's not going to reveal the reason, in fact, less times until later. But he removes kings and he establishes kings. Here again, I think Don, Don Green provides some helpful reflections. God may not always put into power the people that we would personally choose, but to the Christian, but to the Christian, that is irrelevant. That doesn't matter because it is a subset of the greater reality that God is over all because he is sovereign, because the universe belongs to him. The world is his and all it contains. He, it, it is his prerogative to establish in authority those he chooses to put there. And whether it's by genealogical succession in some countries, whether it's by democratic elections in other places of the world, God is using those various means to establish precisely the authority that he wants over a given round at a given time. He establishes rulers. He removes kings. He establishes kings. 
So first reason, God is sovereign over all. Second reason, God is sovereign over the rise of leaders. Thirdly, God is sovereign over the hearts of leaders. God is sovereign over the hearts of leaders. God doesn't surrender his authority or his sovereignty once he puts a king in place. And we, we see this in, in scriptures like Proverbs 21.1. Proverbs 21.1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. He turns it wherever he wishes. The heart there is representative of, of, of the king's desires. Summarizing this, why, why can we fearlessly and consistently be subject to and obey our governing authorities? God is sovereign over all. He's sovereign over the rise of human leaders and he's sovereign over the hearts of leaders. And here, I again, just want to quote Don. Um, I think it's a, it's a helpful, helpful conclusion. Sometimes, as with Pharaoh and in the book of Exodus, he allows leaders to pursue a course of sin for the purpose of displaying his greater glory down the road. He lets hardened leaders oppose him only so that as they rise to the greatness of power, ultimately he displays his even greater power when he brings them down. We simply have to think about the course of world events from this great perspective. God allows sin to go on for a time because it is going to achieve a greater purpose that will be displayed yet to come. He allows rulers who are unrighteous to have their position Sometimes simply because he's going to achieve greater things down the road. The end of history will show conclusively that at the final analysis, God reigned over all of it. We get, we get to deal in time with some of the ups and downs, the vicissitudes of that. But don't ever doubt, don't ever question that the God of the Bible, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is sovereign over all of it. Let's bring it. Let's bring it to here now in terms of the way we think about the world around us. Somehow you and I have got to grasp the fact we have to embrace the fact that God has appointed our existing leaders for this time in our lives. That's the only conclusion you can draw from it. That is from Scripture. God establishes rulers according to his will. He directs the course of events, all things. He's working it all to accomplish his predetermined ends. Amen. And so when we see headlines that that would otherwise grip us with fear or otherwise fill us with anger, I mean, pray for that leader. We didn't talk about that, but God commands us to pray for it. Pray for that leader and pray and ask God to help you to submit, to be obedient wherever you can for his glory. You see, when you submit to what Paul is saying in Romans 13, when you submit to these governing authorities, you're ultimately submitting to God. If you rebel against these governing authorities, you're rebelling against God. Now, if they tell you to do something that, that God prohibits, then there's no sin in that. You've you got to obey God, even if that lesser authority brings punishment upon you. There's no sin against God. Right? So that's, that's what I was saying. You always obey God rather than men. And so this passage today is reminding us, and Scripture is reminding us, that, that you and I, as God's children, and representatives here on earth are to be subject to and obey your governing authorities. And I just want to say at the end here that, you know, if, if the response of your life is that of, man, you're just, you're just filled with anger over what's going on and, and you don't, don't know how to deal with it, and that, that characterizes your life or you're filled with fear, 
Maybe you don't know Christ. If you don't know Christ, there's good reason to be fearful. And the government is the, isn't the biggest reason to be fearful. The biggest reason to be fearful is if you died without Christ, you, you die in your sins and you'll spend eternity in punishment for your sins. That's a conscience living punishment. But God died on the cross. Jesus died and rose again to save everybody who calls upon his name. And that's the good news. And if you believe in him, he will save you. He will give you his spirit as a as a down payment and seal of your salvation. And then you can live your life trusting God, not fearful, trusting God, not angry. That doesn't mean we don't get angry when we see uh, uh, true sin. Of course we do. But we deal with that in the right way to honor our Lord and our God. That's, That's what God calls us to. And really, that's the bigger picture of Titus. Live a certain way so that you are, can be clearly identified as a son of God or a daughter of God. So that when you proclaim the gospel with your lips, your life backs it up. Because if you proclaim the gospel with your lips, but you live a life of rebellion to local authorities, just generally, you're going to undermine the whole testimony of what you're saying. And you, you don't want to do it. God doesn't want you to do that. God wants you, your witness um, to be um, lined up with what you, how you're living. And we do this for his glory. So we'll continue our study of these healthy habits to, that need to characterize our lives and how we respond to, to the government and to others. Uh, we'll continue this study uh, next week. Let's pray. Our Lord, this, this uh, instructions like this are, are just hard for us to hear and because of what's going on in our government right now, for many of us anyway, that it just, whether it's um, foreign policy, domestic policy, economics, health policy, it just goes on and on. There's just lots of, lots of occasions for us to either become fearful or to become angry. And we've learned from your word, you don't want us to respond either of those ways. We certainly want us to hate what you hate, love what you love. But Lord, help us to to see local authority, whether that's a parent, husband, employer, um, city leadership, county leadership, state leadership, federal leadership, whatever that is, to see that as, as really your leadership. And may we... Um, just to honor and glorify you with our lives by how we by how we live it in this in this these crazy times in these mad mad times, oh God, just transform us and help us to live as your people, and we thank you, Lord God, that you provide forgiveness for us where we fail, Lord, you promise that when we confess our sins to you, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We praise you, O oh God for your work on the cross, your work in the resurrection, your work now in us in building up your church for your glory. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.